Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am speaking to Ellie. Now you see, Godly. I didn't ask you. Godly. See, I asked you how to pronounce your first name, but that's, that's, that's okay. That's a, they're both difficult. They're both not easy to pronounce. Right. Let's let's start with the obvious here, uh, Ellie. Where is that name from? So it's a great question. So I'm I'm a bit of a mutt. I'm part. <laughs> I'm I'm actually part Colombian and part Israeli. So. Uh, that name, though, is, is, I think, closer to the Israeli side of the family. There's not a lot of Colombians who speak Spanish, and their name is Ellie. So I, I would say that's more, uh, it's, 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 it's more Israeli, but the last name, Gottlieb, is German. Right. Now, I thought I was bad. I'm, I'm an Irish man living in Australia, <laughs> in Australia and people get confused. But you, oh, yeah. you, have, you have an American accent. Yeah, oh, yeah. You're, just... a between, you're a mix between Colombian and Israeli, and your last name is German. Is that right? Uh, that's actually right. And I'm also Polish as well. So again, <laughs> quite the mud, quite the mud. And uh, yeah, a bit of everything, a bit of, a bit of uh, yeah, speak Spanish, speak English, a little bit of Hebrew. Uh, so it's, it's good. Well, mucho gusto, señor. Muy bien. Sí, gracias, señor. Right, we might change this podcast to uh, genome sequencing for performance. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I need one of those. I, I'm, I'm sure there's something else in there. <laughs> right, Ellie, that's, that's, a, that's a great start to a podcast. So you obviously yeah. have an American accent or a North yeah. American accent. I am. So where, where did you grow up and um, yeah. how did you get into this sort of uh, work? Yeah. Yeah. What was your journey from birth to PhD? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's quite a weird journey, actually. So, I, um, so I'm from Miami, actually, originally. And... Uh, and the way I ended up here in Australia is a long-winded story, but I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively short. So um, I did my undergraduate degree um, in a relatively small liberal arts college in Florida called Rollins College, and uh, I did it in psychology. And uh, but before I got to psychology, I was actually a philosophy major, and I was also studying uh, religious studies as well. And um, my path to psychology and then to neuroscience kind of stemmed from really the philosophy route and wanting to question things. And uh, I always found, though, in the, in the philosophy classes that it was kind of slightly arbitrary, some of the things that we were talking about. And I wanted to test a lot of the things that we were talking about. And one of the things that I was really fascinated with at the time was this idea of happiness and positive psychology. Um, and that's what kind of led me from philosophy into psychology. Um, that was in my second year of college or uni. And then um, I, I, was, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I didn't know for what. So I basically asked all of the psych department, is anybody uh, allowing research uh, students to join them? And there was only one person that was taking them. Uh, her name was Dr. Woodward. And uh, she was a, a, sleep, uh, a sleep researcher. And uh, her background uh, was, she was you know, one of the leading sleep experts in, in women's sleep and looking at menopause and the impact of menopause on sleep. And I did research with her looking at the impact of blue light um, on circadian rhythms um, and, and sleep for about two years um, and loved every second of it. And so from there, I, uh, I actually worked with Johnson & Johnson uh, for about a, a year and a half after graduating. And uh, I was doing a, we're working on the longitudinal kind of epidemiological study, looking just very simply at the impact of living in, a, in a, an environment that caters to health and wellness um, uh, and in a community that caters to health and wellness, what are the impact, what's the impact of that on actual behavioral outcomes? Um, so we're looking at physical activity and one of the things that they brought me in for was, was kind of putting together a sleep program. Um, but I, I knew I still wanted to go to graduate school. I knew that if I wanted to excel within the company, then I probably needed a PhD. And um, I wanted to focus more on neuroscience specifically and looking at some of the, um, the actual neuroanatomical underpinnings of sleep. So, so, you know, sleep is driven within the brain. So I thought it was really critical to understand that more fluently. And that led me to an internship at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience. So I worked with J&J for about a year and a half. And then um, I, I was offered this internship um, in Australia. I'm like, why am I not? How could I not go to Australia for two months? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I did my internship 
um, for yeah a couple of months and uh, worked within the clinical cognitive neuroscience lab uh, that's within uh, the Flory Institute and worked with Amy Brotman, um, who's now my primary supervisor. And I loved it so much that I asked to do a PhD. Um, and, uh, and here I am. <laughs> here you are. Yeah. Now, very interesting. So that's a wild and wonderful journey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ellie, when you were speaking there, you kind of remind me a little bit of a, a guy who you may or may not follow called Sam Harris. You know Sam Harris? I don't. You know, he's, um, he's, been, he's fairly popular in terms of being a, I suppose maybe, depends if you like him or don't like him. Some people say he's a bit of an antagonist, but okay. uh, he, he started off um, as a philosophy. I think he did philosophy in his undergrad and then eventually mm. got to neuroscience and his PhD. But in between, he actually published a few books. Uh, if you look up his name, Sam Harris, um, you'll find some very interesting videos with him. He's had some online arguments, face-to-face uh, uh, -face -face arguments and interviews with Ben Affleck. He's quite outspoken on um, Islam and some other things. But anyway. Yeah, the philosophy majors tend to be quite outspoken and, and love to debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is actually, um, which isn't actually related to what we're going to talk about today, but this is a point of difference. I find that in Australia and probably even in Western Europe, a lot of people do their undergrad in a discipline. Let's, uh, let's just take exercise um, physiology or exercise science and then they tend to go on and do a PhD in exercise science but in the US a lot of people tend to nearly do the you know the opposite of what to do in their undergrad or sometimes not even related or it might have a tenuous link which I think is I think is a little bit it's, it's pretty interesting in terms of it gives yeah. people dif different sort of thoughts or like, so uh -huh. a lot of people do what you did or do an undergrad and a kind of a you know, a Bachelor of Arts and then go on maybe and do accounting as a PhD. Yeah, what's absolutely. Your on, what's your thoughts on the difference with the US model versus like Australia and Western Europe? It's very different. It's very different. So I think the, the US model, and I, it also depends on, on what kind of university you're going to. So if you're going to a liberal arts college or you're going to a more technical college, your experience is going to be you know, vastly different. But at least where I went to school, um, and a majority, I think, of, of, of private schools in the US uh, colleges are, are liberal arts focused. And really the idea is, is actually, it goes back to philosophy, in fact, um, it's to create not just one specialty, to create a, a whole person in a way. So to create little bits of knowledge um, and uh, to know um, really a lot about a little versus a little bit about a lot. I think that's, that's the, the major difference. So I think here in Australia, um, what, I've, what I've noticed, at least in the PhD, because the PhD is different in, in Australia versus a PhD in the U.S., and that's you know, I, I wanted to focus on research, whereas a PhD in the U.S. would be focused not only on research, but also on coursework. Um, and so, for example, um, I think here we're really we're really focused on the research aspect. And for that reason, Australian PhDs, um, the, the students tend to come out, as I mentioned before, knowing um, a lot about a little. Right. So you, you, you focus on this one topic. You don't take a lot of coursework during your PhD. And, um, and, and there's pros and cons of both, right? And so for me, at least, I, I really wanted to focus on one question, but I think um, for, you know, a majority of, of US PhD programs, for example, they focus on, you know, potentially multiple questions and having a little bit of, of knowledge in a lot versus a lot, of, versus a lot of knowledge in just a little bit of, of you know, in one subject, for example. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a, they're both vastly different models, but I do think in the U.S., yeah, we we tend to focus on knowing a little bit um, about a lot of different things. Yeah, I I I'd, uh, I've seen that as well, and I think mm. um, yeah, I think PhDs generally here would probably publish more coming out of PhD. It might be somewhat like a, a nearly like a postdoc nearly in the in North America, whereas. Um, it's the other way around like it's, it's yeah, more, like more coursework so we don't we don't really take coursework here so a, yeah absolutely i mean i think a majority of, of phd student uh, phd programs in the u.s take up to you know six years only because they have that you know few years of coursework as well and so it, it takes longer and they usually yeah uh, will we'll pump out less papers i think yeah but a lot of programs have the masters incorporated in them as well don't they like you have to do a master's first as a stepping stone yeah so it's almost 
Exactly. It's almost part of, you know, part of the deal. You know, if you're going to do a PhD, you might as well also get your master's. Um, and I know, you know, a, a few of my friends who are in PhD programs decide to just go for the master's. And if you just kind of um, override that and go straight to PhD to focus on some of the research. Yeah. See, I told you we go on tangents. So really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast in itself, but it's important. I, I do think for anyone who's listening, that's interested in, in graduate school or, or kind of the differences in models between you know, the countries, I think it's, 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 it's a really interesting, you know, because you might have some Australian um, candidates who might want to go to the U.S. Um, and, and, that, and that happens um, that are, you know, and the model is going to be different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, you know, uh, Ellie, I'm in my 40s and I still don't want to, I still don't know what I want to do at graduate school. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a PhD and I still don't know what I'm doing. So, <laughs> so um, can you tell us what it was like growing up in Miami? Because we see all these uh, cool shows. You might be a bit younger, but I'm, I'm from the days of uh, Crockett and Tubbs and the original Miami Vice. So I know what I, is Miami actually that cool or do people? Uh, like it's, it's a different, it's, it's very different visiting <laughs> versus living there, I would say. And um, I, I do think though that like, it's a, it's a great place to visit. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I, the biggest, I think, thing that's great about Miami is how multicultural it is. Very similar to Melbourne, actually. Um, and you have, you know, vastly, this is specifically in Miami. Northern Florida is like, you know, you hear the, all, all the crazy stories about, you know, Florida. That's Northern Florida. South Florida is almost like a different state entirely. But um, living in Miami is is fun. Uh, there's, you know, there's um, always things going on. There's a huge uh, Latin influence and Latin culture. So there's great food. Uh, and, and it's always, you know, there's always something happening. Um, and have you ever been to the US by any chance? Oh, yeah, but I, I've been, yeah, I did. Um, I used to go to work in Salt Lake City in Utah. Denver, oh, great. Colorado, Boston, oh, beautiful. Massachusetts. Uh, I used to go up to Montreal, Vancouver for work. And then I ran a couple of, uh, I ran a hundred mile race in Colorado twice. Oh my God. hundred miles. Yeah. But I haven't been what was, to Florida. What was that like? Uh, painful. <laughs> 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 I've spoken about it before in the podcast, but basically it was a hundred miles running at altitude in the Colorado Rockies for 27 hours, 42 minutes, 19 seconds. Uh, wow. Yeah. Continuously, so it was quite quite interesting. So, um, hence wow. why hence why I'm interested in sleep deprivation and performance. So, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> it's a perfect subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I had some friends actually live down in Florida. I had one guy, a friend of mine, Reed, who's been on the podcast before. He works for the UFC in Shanghai, but he used to work for Gatorade, and he was on the sort of the Gulf side. And oh, another, wow. another friend who was uh, semi-retired living in Key West. Uh, he's an experimental psychologist. Um, so they're the only two people I know. So I never got that lived in Florida, but I never got a chance to go and visit them. So it's, it's, it's Florida's great. I mean, Miami and, and, and the, the Key West is gorgeous as well. All the, yeah. all the keys are, it's really beautiful, but it's very, it's, it, there's a lot of similarities to, to Melbourne in the sense that it's quite multicultural, but it's also, you know, there, there's, not nearly as many Hispanics and Latin people as there are um, in the U.S. or really in, in Florida in general. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, did I hear correctly or read correctly that there's more Spanish spoken in Miami than there is English? Would that be a? Favorite? It's it's like it's almost if you don't speak Spanish, you it's it's really difficult to get a job. I feel like like a majority of people. Yeah, I, you have to speak Spanish um, because yeah, a majority of people do. I think, and so. Um, uh, not that it's impossible. That's not true, <laughs> but I think it's it's definitely it helps to have that Spanish lingo and that Spanish background. You're so triste. Exactly. <laughs> I, I know little words here and there. Anyway, I, I've got a, yeah. I've got a, I've got enough um, to get me into trouble. I'll give you a very funny story before we actually get into the scientific part. Sure. My wife and I, my wife and I were getting Spanish lessons uh, here in Perth, in Western Australia, and in some context i can't remember exactly who i was speaking to i said yo soy embarazada oh. <laughs> now I, I, because i was looking for the similar words in spanish to um english that would yeah. sound like i am embarrassed but the actual it, translation of that is i am pregnant yeah <laughs> uh, yep that's 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 correct <laughs> so that's know, so funny 
I tried to be clever and, you know, I think I was pulling out a word here that was similar, but it wasn't. You, you were not. You were not. No. You were <laughs> <laughs> physiologically impossible. But that's, uh, that's a great, that's a great well, story. Well, I, 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 I don't know in this day and age. Maybe you have to, uh, say, you have to say it's allowed. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's allowed. Okay, I should, uh, yeah, I should correct myself. That's, that's correct. <laughs> you, you did go to a liberal arts college anyway, so you have to. Um, I did, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware. I... <laughs> next, next subject, next subject. Right. <laughs> let's, let's jump into this um, clinical review is, is yeah. why I, I you know, reached out to you on Twitter. Um, so Thank I, you. Twitter can be used for good. Um, <laughs> this great systematic review that you published called The Bidirectional Impact of Sleep, Circadian Rhythm Dysfunction in Human Ischemic Stroke, a Systematic mm. Review. Mm. Ali, the first thing I'm going to ask you is because we see lots of reviews. Uh, we see general reviews. We see meta-analysis reviews. We see system re- systematic reviews. We see YouTube reviews. What, what exactly is a systematic review? How would you decide, des- describe this process or yeah. this methodology? That's a great question. So I think the first thing to note uh, with the systematic review is that you're not, we're not just going on to Google Scholar and looking up sleep, stroke, and circadian rhythms and pulling out citations and then, you know, plugging them in uh, and including them in, in, in some kind of review. Um, this systematic review um, took a year and a half, a little bit more potentially, uh, because of some of the, the amount of papers that we included. Um, and, and the methods that were involved. So a systematic review in general, um, it, it, it follows what are called PRISMA guidelines. So these are pre-established guidelines that, you know, that kind of tell you what should be included in the systematic review, uh, what specifically, uh, what's, you know, search criteria you should be using, what your search strategy should be using. So unlike just a regular review, for example, where an author can just, you know, include any papers that you know, he would like or he or she would like. Uh, a systematic review follows um, really pre-established criteria and comes out with really these a priori hypotheses in general. And so um, we specifically conducted searches across three major databases with specific criteria, with inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria. Um, but unlike a meta-analysis where we extract all that data and run additional analyses on that data, because, and we'll talk about that in a bit, because the data here was, was vastly different, there was, we were looking at many different things, it was what we call heterogeneous, uh, we, we couldn't combine all that data um, to, to look at a certain outcome. So this systematic review uh, was systematic in the sense that we followed you know, pre-established PRISMA guidelines, um, and, you know, we had a search criteria, we had study selection, we did also have data extraction, uh, but the actual um, findings, we, we weren't saying that, you know, for example, excessively long sleep duration increased stroke risk by two to threefold. We couldn't say that exactly. We, yeah. we, um, we were looking more so at, at kind of a qualitative synthesis of everything rather than a quantitative synth- synthesis. Yeah, so for people listening, um, you can nearly just, uh, what I like to imagine this is like a big funnel. At the top of the funnel, you throw in everything. You mm. basically go down, you look to see if there's duplication, so you get rid of those. You've got a set of criteria, and basically what comes out at the bottom is what you're going to look at. So to give you an idea of what uh, Ellie had in his paper here, he had 6,587 papers go into the funnel, mm. and only 67 came out the bottom that met the, met the criteria. Um, and even with, with those 67, there was lots of differences or lot, lots of different, different categories you could put them into as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. So That's exactly I right. I think it's, it's interesting to kind of maybe think about this as a model in your, in your mind's eye <laughs> yeah. um, about how this actually works. Because exactly what you said earlier, it's not a case of let's just search sleep and mm. stroke and write yeah. you know, our opinion on it. It's actually, mm. like you said, systematically working through these papers. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's a great, that's a great analogy, that kind of funnel of going in and, yeah. and it, it shows the, the, the vast amount of work that goes into a systematic review because um, not just this paper, but a majority of papers have upwards of six, seven, eight, even 15,000 papers that they have to kind of search through. Um, and then once they have relevant papers, then they have to actually, you know, read the full texts um, to see, you know, to, to determine eligibility. And then from the full texts, they can they can actually look at some of the uh, the findings and, and and include them in the qualitative synthesis. 
yeah, it seems like an easy job, but really isn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> so, so Ali, can you describe to us, or can you explain, because um, in your intro, we speak, you speak about stroke, and you talk mm. about three, three different types of stroke. Can you explain to us what the definition of stroke is and what those three different categories are? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, stroke is essentially a, a clot in, in, um, in, or a blockage within the artery that leads to the brain. And uh, that causes the brain to, you know, it, it essentially cuts all of the nutrients and oxygen that is vital for brain health. Uh, and that eventually, after time, causes cell death, which we call atrophy, neuronal death atrophy. Um, and there's really three types of, of stroke. There's ischemic stroke, which is the most common uh, type of stroke. And this is in about 80% of all stroke cases. And that specifically is by a clot um, or a blockage within an artery that leads to the brain. Um, there is intracerebral hemorrhage. So that hemorrhage is a type of stroke that's caused by a rupture rather than a clot of an artery within the brain. And then blood is then released into, into the brain and then that kind of compresses some of the brain structures and, and can cause a lot of damage there. Um, the other one is also subarachnoid hemorrhoid, uh, hemorrhoid, hem hemorrhage, um, and it's all, <laughs> not a hemorrhoid. Uh, and it's also a type of stroke caused by a sudden rupture of an artery. So that differs from the intracerebral hemorrhage in that the location of the rupture kind of leads to blood filling the space surrounding the brain rather than inside of it. All right. So ischemic stroke is approximately 80% of all strokes. That's what. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. And we also have transient ischemic attacks, which is um, a brief stroke-like attack uh, that usually resolves within a few minutes to an hour, but it still requires medical attention to, to kind of distinguish from an actual stroke. Okay. And is that generally kind of, let's say, a pre-stroke event or is it post-stroke? Is it intermittent or is that like a, war a warning sign, so to speak? It, it can be a warning sign. So transient ischemic attack, if you have one, uh, can be a risk factor for, for, for a recurrent stroke or another actual more uh, severe stroke like an ischemic stroke. But uh, transient ischemic attacks tend to resolve, um, yeah, like I said, within, um, you know, 8 to, to 12 hours. Mm. Now, what's also interesting here in the intro or the background, which is that you found that stroke-related sleep dysfunction in humans is primarily focused on the impact of obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. It, it, that's a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So I was just going to say, so is that sort of that after a stroke, people have sleep apnea or is it like a regression looking at the, the relationship between people who've had a stroke and the potential prevalence of sleep apnea within them. How, how is that kind of working? That, that so, so really the, the most robust literature in the sleep apnea and stroke world is, is sleep apnea as a risk factor for stroke. Okay. Um, and so um, we know that patients who have, you know, sleep apnea have, you know, desaturation of oxygen and a myriad of other kind of um, uh, you know, physiological ailments that are a result of the obstructive sleep apnea. And, um, and those increase, we think, the risk for stroke. Um, and so there's been a lot of this already. Um, and, and it's really interesting, but I think relatively well established. So I thought the question, and, you know, I think people would agree that the, the more interesting question now that we know the potential impact of obstructive sleep apnea on stroke risk would be non uh, non-apnea sleep disorders because there's a range of them and there's a lot of them and such so as, such as periodic like movement disorder insomnia shift yeah, disorder all these type of things absolutely yeah. so so we wanted to focus um not on obstructive sleep apnea um although a lot of these other sleep disorders may have a comorbidity with sleep apnea uh, but we wanted to focus on other sleep disorders and looking not just at the risk of of um, those non-apnea sleep disorders on stroke, but the actual impact of stroke on causing newfound sleep disorders that weren't there prior to the stroke yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah, so that was really the focus here. Yeah, because what's interesting as well, which um, you know, anecdotally lines up with what um, you know, emergency physicians tell us, um, what paramedics tell us as well, that most of these strokes happen in the morning before 6 a.m. So yeah. a lot of people talk about heart attacks, stroke, all happening between sort of three and six o'clock in the morning, which may suggest that there's a circadian rhythm variation because like you say here, it's at that nadir or low point. But also exactly. 
the other one we see as well is when clocks change or time changes like you guys mm. had recently in Melbourne, we also see an increase in people going to hospital for strokes and, and heart attacks as well. So indicating yeah. that there is a circadian variation in this. Absolutely. There's definitely, we think, a circadian variation in it. Um, and, but really the focus of this in terms of this, the circadian rhythm component here was to look specifically at, um, at questionnaires that have been validated to, to look at circadian rhythm, which there's not a lot. Um, and, and we also wanted to look specifically at um, accelerometer actigraphy. Um, and we also wanted to focus on specifically melatonin um, and, and melatonin secretion um, and, and the potential impact of stroke on, you know, melatonin uh, secretion after stroke. Um, so we really, the, the kind of um, the morning stroke or the wake up strokes, as, as they called, is actually a great systematic review that was published in some medicine reviews as well, uh, looking at wake up stroke and kind of the pathophysiology of it. Um, but that is also something that we, we that was a whole nother paper, but we really just wanted to focus on um, established uh, markers of circadian rhythm. So melatonin um, uh, and, and some of those established uh, validated um, uh, circadian rhythm questionnaires. Yeah. So Ellie, in, we've spoken a little bit about then in, in terms of your methodology, following the PRISMA guidelines for a systematic review. But what I would like to mm -hmm. speak about is, um, is just to let the listeners know about the difference in these sleep and measures of sleep and what you're looking for in stroke. So, mm. for example, in, in sleep, um, mm. what I derive from reading this paper is that you've actually looked at this in a hierarchy, hierarchy um, can't even speak, hierarchical approach. Uh, yep. <laughs> looking at the very, the very top gold standard polysomnography, which is like in a mm. laboratory or basically wired up down yep. to act actigraphy or accelerometry worn on a wrist, all the way down to self-reported measures and um, such as diaries or validated questionnaires. And as you go down those, basically the quality of those becomes less and less. Um, it's, it's, that's exactly right. So what so, did you use in terms of like, we'll say, looking at the prevalence of stroke, such as MRI and so on, how would you rate those measures on, the, on that side? How, how do you, not measure, sorry, methods? Yeah, so I think the first thing to note is that for these um, longitudinal um, prospective studies, so these are studies that are following people, let's say, um, you know, let's say people who've never had a stroke, but might have some vascular risk factors, um, like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. Um, it's very difficult to use, for example, polysomnography on these people over a long period of time, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very difficult. Uh, we actually didn't find any studies that uh, when looking at risk included polysomnography at, at multiple time points over time. Because um, it's a pain in the ass to do and expensive. It <laughs> is a pain. It is, my God, it is a nightmare. I actually, before, because I, for my PhD, I also had to, sorry, tangent real quick. I had to uh, learn how to, you know, put on PSGs and EEGs yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I had to put one on myself and it's not fun. It's, it's, no, it's, not. it's yeah. and it's not, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world either. Um, anyway, so for, for risk, looking specifically at risk, I mean, all these studies utilized self-report, right? So if we wanted to track people over, let's say eight years, and let's say we had, um, you know, six different time points within those eight years, um, all of those, the sleep it was measured using um, self-report, so sleep diaries, for example. Um, and so we can't really gauge uh, specifics in terms of sleep architecture, for example. So what we, they really were looking at is the amount of time those patients slept rather than what kind of sleep they may have been getting. So increased slow-wave sleep, reductions in REM, we, we, they, they couldn't really tell that. Um, and when we look then um, after stroke, at one time point, that's when, um, you know, a majority of these studies can utilize uh, the gold standard for sleep detection, which is polysomnography yeah. um, at one time point. Um, and then kind of in between that, though, is following people, maybe not for eight years, but maybe for a couple of months and have them wear an accelerometer that just measures kind of micro movements. Um, and it's not as great as, as polysomnography, but it is objective. Um, and for that, they, you know, uh, they can kind of look longitudinally as well, which is why validation studies and making sure that these 
accelerometers and active, you know, active, actigraphy devices are, are working well in comparison to polysonography. That, that's why it's so important to have that. Oh, I totally agree. And uh, we'll do a short little advertisement here. If you'd like to see a validation paper on the, these devices, please check out my most recent work. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> that was great. Uh, just send me $59.99 and I can send mm-hmm. you a paper. Um, so there you, you go. <laughs> you're, 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 you're exactly right there. A lot of people take up these um, actigraphy devices because they've been advertised very well and they have complete faith in the measures of sleep. And mm. it's something we spoke about in this podcast, you know, loads is like sleep apps and tracking devices just because they're advertised and look cool and everybody's wearing one doesn't mean necessarily it's actually validated for these measures you absolutely know? they're just and, activity trackers a lot of them and and i think the important thing too is good validation uh studies because uh i mean I'm, I'm just about to submit a validation study as well and uh it's it's very easy to get away with not doing a great validation paper which oh, yeah. i mean is a, it's a whole other topic but um yeah, I, I agree. Validation is so important, especially when consumer use of sleep devices is, is so widespread now. So, Ali, in this paper, you looked at like you looked at a sort of a range here of uh, yeah. methods in the papers. Um, so you have MRI and CT and so on. Can you just give the listeners a brief overview of what MRI is and CT and what the general differences are between those? Sure, sure. So um, I think the what's what's really important for to just kind of basically understand is that uh, MRI number one is just is magnetic resonance imaging, um, and it's a technique we use in radi- radiology to kind of form pictures of the anatomy and the physiology process of the body. And MRI scanners use strong mag- magnetic fields, uh, magnetic field gradients and radio waves to kind of generate images of organs in the body. And in this case, uh, specifically uh, of the brain, where a CT scan is what we call computed tomography. Uh, and it's a, me- it's a medical imaging procedure that uses uh, many X-ray measurements taken from different angles uh, to produce different images of the brain. So they both produce um, images of the brain um, after a lot of pre-processing. Um, but MRI uh, doesn't, doesn't utilize some of the x-rays that, that, uh, that CT scans do. Uh, CT scans are also uh, relatively, we think, quicker uh, than MRIs uh, to, to, to do, and, and uh, they're often utilized in, in emergency care units. Uh, MRIs are as well, um, but for, for measuring kind of the anatomy and looking really in detail uh, of the brain, we, we focus on, on high-resolution MRI. Um, which is, which is um, you know, what we do in more research settings as well. But in the acute phase of, of stroke, for example, um, you know, we, we do utilize both. Uh, but with, in terms of MRI, uh, we use, usually use a less, uh, a lower resolution in MRI just because we want to get it done as soon as possible for the patient. Yeah, 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 for sure. Hmm. All right. So, you had all this criteria, had all these different methods you looked at. You looked at everything from sort of the gold standard right down to sleep reported. Yeah. So, so really what we... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you kind of grouped these into six categories. Um, <clears throat> so I was wondering if we could maybe just start working through those six categories briefly and talk about the outputs from them. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the first thing to note is that we were looking bi-directionally. So, so looking both at the impact or the risk of sleep and circadian rhythm dysfunction uh, or the, the sleep and circadian rhythm dysfunction as a risk factor for stroke and the consequence of stroke on sleep and circadian rhythm dysfunction. And that's kind of why we had those six different categories because those first three were looking mainly at risk and those last three were looking at the consequence of stroke on, on, on sleep. So we really wanted to look both ways. And that's why it's such a, a meaty and massive paper, because we're, we're kind of pulling everything that is known bi-directionally. Um, so even, even if it went, even if the paper was looking specifically at risk, it was included, or if it was looking at, you know, um, three months post-stroke, the impact of, of stroke on sleep architecture, that was included as well. So we were really looking bi-directionally. It wasn't necessarily um, uh, measurement focused. It was more just looking at the, the direction um, more so than anything. So I guess we could start with the, the kind of the first direction. Um, and I'm just which trying is, to... 
the first the first one is what came first, the chicken or the egg? So that's a, oh, that's a, that's that's another that's a very good point. Uh, the first one but, you had was sleep direct sleep duration on risk of ischemic stroke. That was yeah, so so this was actually uh, the most I think robust finding of of the systematic review. And um, what what the majority of these studies found was it was that long sleep duration. Uh, categorized by, in general, greater than eight hours of sleep a night, was associated with the most risk of uh, ischemic stroke death or incidence. I so not necessarily surprising, really surprising this one. Yeah, so a lot of people have been, and 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 this kind of excessively long sleep or hypersomnia um, uh, finding and how it relates to not just stroke. It's it's a range of of disease. What we're finding in terms of sleep duration is that. Uh, there's this J-shaped relationship between sleep duration and ischemic stroke risk where um, the kind of the tip of the J is maybe, let's say, six hours, which increases your risk. But even more so, what increases the risk is the top of the J, which, for example, might be eight, nine, ten hours. And I think there's some important, you know, uh, things to note here with the long sleep duration. Number one, uh, as you know, as we age, our sleep duration tends to decrease. And uh, a 80-year-old a would, would more likely sleep six hours than eight hours. Um, if they are sleeping eight hours, some of the thinking is that that eight hours and the extra two hours might be compensatory for a lack of um, a lack of deep, important sleep like slow aver REM. So we think that a majority of these patients that are you know, having increased risk um, of stroke and are sleeping eight hours um, have relatively uh, low, uh, or I should say kind of um, uh, low amount of, of deep sleep uh, and, and higher amounts of, of more kind of preliminary stages of sleep like stage one or two. Um, so the other point I think that's important to note is that a lot of patients who are sleeping greater than eight hours um, and that are older age tend to have a lot of comorbidities, right? So they have a lot of psychiatric ailments that might also somehow be impacting that stroke risk. So this includes uh, depression, um, even schizophrenia, um, but specifically depression, which, which usually is accompanied in some form by a hypersomnia. Uh, diagnosis. So I think that's one thing that's really important to note here. So can I just ask you a question early on that? You said as people get older, they obviously sleep less. So we see that, mm. that it's harder for people to maintain or achieve seven to nine hours as they get older. But exactly. did, you, did you say correctly that, did I hear you correctly saying that it was actually more deep sleep, stage three sleep in these people? No, no. So we don't know. So that was the question. Oh, yeah. So I, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I would assume that it's that the people that are sleeping greater than eight hours of night uh, of sleep a night have significantly less um, deep sleep and that, oh, yes, yeah, that, yeah. that the, that the long sleep duration th that these patients are spending a majority of their time in stage one or two. Yeah. Um, or, even, and, or even wake after sleep onset, just lying in bed. That's, uh, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I think is important to note is that uh, patients who have neurological disease, what we're finding is that they have a, a big difficulty in terms of their uh, of self-perceived sleep, right? So they, um, they misperceive, there's a big misperception of sleep in, in older patients, but usually you would think that uh, they would perceive that they'd be sleeping less. But in fact, what we, there's a few papers showing in Parkinson's disease, for example, that they don't even recognize, for example, when they're uh, asleep um, and that they will, um, that they will, uh, underestimate the amount of, of or sorry, overestimate the amount of sleep that they actually get. So these patients might be getting, you know, six to seven hours of sleep, uh, but they might be overestimating the amount of sleep that they get. Now, why that misperception of sleep is potentially driving stroke risk is, is you know, this might be related to some other um, psychiatric comorbidities. Yeah, I think the other thing to hear as well to know is that's probably well, not that a problem, it is actually prevalent in other populations. So in general population, shift workers and elite athletes where I've had most of my experience, they mm. tend to oversleep, oh, sorry, overestimate sleep by 60 to 90 minutes per night. And actually, when I ask people what, how much they slept last night, I mm. think what they're actually reporting is time in bed. Yeah, it's a great so, point. 
so that's that's something that uh, is is really interesting. Um, I think the long sleep duration, but I, I do think you know I wouldn't go out and say sleep less. I especially <laughs> wouldn't go out and say sleep less to to um, to, to to to, to non elderly patients. If I see, you know, if for example, an elderly patient is sleeping nine to 10, you know, hours I, I, and feels like they're not getting restorative sleep, that's where this might come into play. Yeah, I think, I think what you've done here, which is really nice, is you've kind of nearly set up a kind of a framework about if I have, you know, if I'm older, if I have these other comorbidities, if I mm. think I'm sleeping X amount, but I feel tired, if all these risk factors are pointing towards stroke, potentially mm. it's something that needs to be to be looked out for. So as a practitioner, it would be the kind of warning signs of something that's going to take place. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So this is such a good point. And I think sleep, we're now finding, you know, sleep can be uh, sleep disturbances in some form or another, um, you know, uh, uh, can really tell us a lot about different physiology, physiological ailments that are taking place. Um, and it might indeed be a risk factor for not just a stroke, but a different range of things. Um, not to scare people, but I think it's important just to note that, again, if you're sleeping 10 hours a night and, uh, and that has changed potentially, right? So some, what's really interesting is there's a lot of papers coming out showing that if someone has slept, you know, their whole life, six hours, uh, but just some kind of recent change, they've now been sleeping 10 or 11, um, but it's not related to coronavirus because I know a lot of people are <laughs> <laughs> spending a lot of time, you know, sleeping now uh, just because they have that extra free time potentially. Um, but if, if they're seeing that shift in sleep duration uh, and they're not feeling restored after sleeping eight to 10 or 11 hours, then that might be something that you want to, you know, touch base with, with your GP or your, uh, or a sleep physician to see, you know, even doing a, a more formal sleep study to see if you're just not getting important slow, you know, slow waiver REM. Yeah. So for all those men over 30 years of age who are in your bed building a fort, and that's not actually <laughs> sleep. That's not actually sleep. That's playtime. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. So let's move on to uh, one of the second findings, which is the sleep disorders on the risk of ischemic stroke. And sleep disorders is a term that pertains to over 70 different sleep disorders, which you've mm. managed to summarize very nicely here in a few paragraphs, so well done. Thank you, so thank I, you. Actually, one paragraph, so I, could you tell us yeah. what you found here, Ali? Sure, sure. so um, there's a few kind of really interesting findings here. Um, number one is that in general, non-apnea sleep disorders generally, we think, increase the risk of ischemic stroke. And uh, the actual pathogenesis or the cause of that is still, we're still trying to look into that. And that's something that I think a lot of the preclinical scientists, that their job will be now to kind of, you know, mimic this in, 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 in rodents, for example, to see how that might actually be causing a stroke. But in general, um, the, the kind of three major uh, uh, sleep disorders that we found were associated with the largest increase in stroke risk was REM sleep behavior disorder, um, hypersomnia, um, I should say there was four, uh, insomnia, and, uh, and um, uh, periodic leg movements throughout the night. So these are some of the more interesting, I think, really findings of this because it shows that it's not just the obstructive sleep apnea that is increasing stroke risk. Um, it is also these non-apnea sleep disorders. Now, um, I think it's also important to note that some of these uh, the measure of these were very different throughout all the studies. So some of these were self-report, which is kind of difficult to, to really ascertain if you have a REM sleep behavior disorder, self-reporting that uh, is relatively difficult. So some of these studies utilized uh, self-report, uh, relatively validated um, uh, uh, sleep questionnaires, um, and other, other kind of um, sleep disorders were actually clinically validated. So, you know, uh, they saw a neurologist and, they were, and these were confirmed. But in general, there was anywhere between a, a two to, you know, threefold increased risk in ischemic stroke in these non-apnea sleep disorders. Ali, in other studies, we see that um, movement disorders such as REM behavior sleep disorder and um, periodic leg movement disorder overnight is generally associated with um, Parkinson's disease. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Roughly 70, 70% of those people are going to develop Parkinson's. Do you think there's any relationship there with that? To yeah. yeah, it's a great, 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 great question. So we know the, some of the alpha synucleopathies uh, like Parkinson's 
um, that that uh, the REM behavior disorder is a huge risk factor for stroke. Um, and I've heard that it's upwards of you know 90% that if you have a REM behavior disorder, you almost certainly will go on to develop a Parkinson's um, or alpha-synucleopathy. So uh, how that relates to stroke is a great question and, and one that I'm actually not sure about. Um, so whether or not um, stroke you know, increases the risk of Parkinson's um, and vice versa, I'm actually not totally sure about. I'd have to do some, some digging. Uh, but we know some of the vascular risk factors um, like type 2 diabetes, um, like uh, hypertension, um, these significantly increase the risk of, of stroke. Um, and, and how that relates to some of the more movement disorders. That's something that I think a few researchers, especially in Melbourne, are looking at right now as well. Yeah. All right. So let's go back the other way. Um, let's look at the, the reverse end. We talk of, you spoke about bidirectional. So let's look at the impact of ischemic stroke on sleep architecture. And yeah. Sleep architecture for people will be very familiar with sleep architecture, but probably haven't heard that term a lot. Sleep mm-hmm. architecture is basically the stages of sleep you go through throughout the night, um, which Ellie spoke about around like stage one. So generally for most people, you'll be awake, you'll go to stage one, stage two, into stage three, then into REM sleep, and then you oscillate through those different stages throughout the night. And the percentage of those would vary. So in general, most people get about 20% deep sleep. Then you've got about 20 to 20 to 25% in REM and the remainder then being in light sleep stages one and two. So mm. you were looking back from ischemic stroke on this architecture and this distribution. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So really the goal here now is to look. So we now we know that uh, sleep disorders and, and, um, and sleep duration, excessively long sleep duration, is a risk factor for stroke. But what about after stroke? So what happens after someone has suffered a stroke? And I think there's a few important things to note before I just go into the results. Number one, it really depends. What the, the findings here depend on when we're measuring sleep. So if someone is in the acute hospital ward, uh, and they've just suffered a stroke, uh, it's, not, it's not crazy to think that they're going to have some sleep dysfunction, right? So they are being woken up every 30 minutes to two hours to check neurological functioning. Um, they have too much light or too little light, which is vastly going to, you know, it's definitely going to impact their, their circadian rhythm. Um, and, and they're in pain, right? So these patients are, are in pain, um, post-stroke. So that we know is going to be a huge um, contributor to sleep-wake dysfunction after stroke. What I think the more interesting question is, is are these sleep disturbances transient? So are they just as a result of environmental issues related to the acute hospital setting? Um, or are they a result of actual injury to sleep-wake hubs in the brain. And that's kind of what we, we talk about uh, or what we can do maybe on a different session um, where I look at, we look at that um, in, in three months post-stroke where the, you know, these patients are no longer in the acute hospital setting and we look at some of their MRI metrics. Um, but what we found here was in general, sleep is significantly disturbed, right? So we are seeing widespread sleep architectural dysfunction. And so the most common sleep uh, variable that was that was disturbed, sleep efficiency. So this is a ratio of total time spent in bed to total time spent sleeping. And so these patients have very poor sleep efficiency. Um, they also have significant amounts of wake after sleep onset, which is probably contributing to that poor sleep efficiency. And then when we look at um, some of the actual sleep architecture, we see that uh, non-REM2 slow-wave sleep and REM were significantly reduced in these patients. And again, this is probably related in some way, uh, not only to, to pain, but to the environmental aspects of, of, yeah. of being in the hospital ward. Yeah, I was just going to say that for people who get lots of disturbances like that in wake after sleep onset, and if you look at the sleep architecture side by side, and they can't basically get down into those deeper stages of sleep, it's due to all those environmental factors, light, noise, being woken up for observations, maybe being in a shared ward with somebody else making noise. It's mm. all these kind of environmental factors. And to extrapolate that to a different environment, if you look at studies in America, for example, where if you look at the, the, the suburb or the, the postcode and match that by violence, 
there is actually because of the environmental factors there's less sleep in those areas as well so it's a real kind of case about the variant sleep conditions and environments have an impact on sleep whether it be in hospitals whether it be in suburbs with violence whether it be in war-torn environments mm. and then the reverse we've looked that has been shown in places like Brazil or developing countries in the absence of all of these electronics or lights or environmental factors, sleep yeah. actually goes up. So it's a real interest in interesting. We see that environmental factors are such an important part of our it, sleep at any stage. Absolutely. And what we're also looking at now is, um, and there's also a lot of really interesting environmental studies looking at, for example, uh, looking at uh, bihemisphere, uh, bihemispheric sleep. So we know in the dolphins, for example, that uh, they sleep bihemispherically, one hemisphere at a time. Uh, but interestingly, in humans, we're seeing some really potentially comparable research. So especially if you're sleeping in a new environment for the first time uh, that you've never slept in before, uh, we tend to sleep bihemispherically or unihemispherically. One hemisphere will stay yeah. in a lighter stage of sleep. And this might be um, as, as kind of a precaution, right? So this might be some kind of evolutionary function to make sure that we don't know where we're sleeping. The environment is very important to our sleep. We need to be aware, even in our sleep, of, of what's going on around us. So when we relate that back to stroke, though, we might be seeing some bihemispheric sleep, um, depending on where the lesion in the brain was. So if you have a, a left a left hemispheric stroke, uh, you might have differences in that sleep uh, versus the right hemisphere. Yeah. And you might have even compensatory sleep in the right hemisphere because uh, there's a lot of research now suggesting that sleep is in fact plastic um, and, and there is neuroplasticity going on post-stroke as well. So all those things related, uh, we think that um, depending on when we measure sleep after stroke, we might be seeing differences um, as it relates to the, to the environment, depending on where we're actually measuring sleep. Uh, not only that, but also the, the side of the, the lesion might be impacting sleep as well. So all these future studies really need to take this into account, which is why I think now the gold standard for sleep measurement, uh, especially in stroke patients, um, might be the at-home uh, polysomnography devices, yes. yeah. uh, not necessarily in a lab. Or if you were to do it in a lab, there'd need to be this habituation period of one to two nights where the patient just gets used to their environment uh, before actually we measure sleep architecture. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, your um, summary there reminds me of the Metallica song, Enter Sandman, where they say, <laughs> sleep with one eye open. And yeah, there you go. People may have heard that saying before, but it's interesting because in other research, um, when we look at people who travel for business a lot, it's self-reported that the first night or two, lots of awakenings because it's a new environment, different noises and so on. And it's this protective mechanism where to wake up to check the environment. I often say it to people, it's like sleep architecture. When you go to sleep, you're not just turning off. You're going through these different phases, but sometimes... Mm -hmm. Well, it is normal to have awakenings, but it's a bit like a submarine. It's a little periscope coming up to look around and see everything's okay. And in a new environment, that periscope might come up more often than, um, yeah. than it would be at home. But we see the same thing in business travelers, Ellie, that people mm. are constantly talking about awakenings. But as the time away increases, so do the awakenings. And we see this in actigraphy when we look at fragmentation index, the number of awakenings. So it's, uh, it's really interesting that similar findings across different types of applications. That's fascinating. So it goes to show that it's not just in you know, elderly patients or in patients with some kind of neurological disease. It's, yeah. it's really in healthy, in healthy uh, people as well. Um, yeah. So it, it is something that the environment plays such a huge part yeah. in, in really our sleep. And actually, there's a lot of really fascinating work going on now at the Flory. Uh, where I'm doing my work, uh, looking at the the potential impact of the environment on on recovery. So making sure that hospital acute hospital settings have sufficient you know full spectrum light um, to kind of normalize circadian rhythms, um, and even have light therapy. Um, so utilizing blue light and different you know wavelengths of light to normalize circadian rhythms and yeah. maximize melatonin amplitude um, and circadian phase. Um, and, and so this is really a really interesting area, not just like, you know, as you mentioned, not just in the acute hospital ward, but for anyone. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's independent of stroke for anybody in a hospital. So 
So mm, absolutely. Uh, the, the fifth one you found was impact of ischemic stroke on sleep disorder. So looking back um, on this, yeah. so what did you find here? So this one was really interesting because what we found was that um, sleep disorders that weren't there prior to the stroke itself may be, you know, may arise after stroke, depending on where that lesion is in the brain. So specifically hypersomnia, I think, was one that was really, really interesting. And it might relate back to uh, to some of that um, long sleep duration work. It's, we found that in general, um, depending on where the lesion was in the brain, it might cause newfound or de novo sleep disorder. So this includes hypersomnia um, and REM behavior disorder. Uh, and, but this, some of this literature we rated as uh, low quality. Uh, so one of these studies are rated as low quality. So I think it's important to note that, um, uh, take that potentially uh, you know, be cautious with some of these findings. Um, and a lot of these were also a self-report. So they, you know, these patients were saying, I didn't have hypersomnia before the stroke, but I have it now. Uh, again, this goes back into this misperception of sleep, uh, whether or not that patient can adequately um, assess um, uh, and perceive their sleep pre-stroke and post-stroke is another thing that warrants, um, you know, further investigation. Yeah. And then the last one you found was? So the actual last one was the circadian. On circadian rhythms, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so these, these studies were really interesting, um, mostly because there's a lot of evidence to suggest now that, um, that exogenous or um, melatonin that's not made in the body, uh, in, um, if you administer exogenous melatonin in some of these rodents and then um, uh, initiate a stroke, uh, that is potentially neuroprotective and it may uh, uh, decrease the actual lesion volume in some of these rodents. So that's why we really wanted to focus on melatonin here um, to look at the amount of melatonin metabolite that is being produced in, in stroke patients. Um, and what we found in general is that after a stroke, um, these patients are, are producing less melatonin. Uh, there's, I think, again, important potential limitations here. Number one, uh, it depends on when the melatonin sample was taken. So it's important not to take the melatonin sample um, at variable times throughout the day because melatonin, as we know, is, is the circadian phase um, and it changes throughout the day. Um, and if these patients were being exposed to too much light in the hospital ward, that might have severely impacted uh, the amount of melatonin that their body was producing. But in general, post-stroke, uh, these patients uh, have less melatonin when compared to healthy age and sex matched con uh, controls. Very interesting. Mm. So in conclusion then, after doing a systematic review for the very short period of 18 months, um, <laughs> what would you, how would you summarize this whole systematic review? Um, from the uh, yeah. what, what would you tell someone if you had two to three minutes on the street? What would you say you found? Yeah, I think the first and most important thing to do to, to really talk about is the importance of non-apnea sleep disorders. So we know obstructive sleep apnea is, is a risk factor for ischemic stroke. Um, and it may also be a consequence of stroke, depending on you know, where in the brain that, that infarction or lesion occurs, especially in the brainstem. Uh, but there's other sleep disorders that definitely warrant mentioning and warrant investigation. And this includes hypersomnia, insomnia, REM behavior disorder, restless leg syndrome, for example. Um, and we know that in general, uh, these studies are, are showing that uh, there's a bi-directional relationship between uh, having uh, sleep dysfunction uh, and, and, and stroke. And that includes both sleep dysfunction as a risk factor for stroke and uh, the impact of stroke on some of these uh, non-apnea sleep disorders um, so I think there's, there, it's important to note of this bi-directional relationship. Uh, and now for the, some of the long sleep duration findings, I think that's really interesting and, and warrants further investigation. Um, if, if you have a you know, 70 to 80 year old that is sleeping uh, nine to 10 hours a night, um, what are the potential physiological mechanisms that are on, you know, in play here? Um, and what's driving that excessively long sleep? Um, so is this uh, just a lack of deep sleep throughout the night that is compensated by long but kind of um, basic stages one to two sleep? Um, that requires further investigation. 
And when we look at this in, in, um, in, in uh, cross-sectionally uh, post-stroke, and we look at some of the MRI metrics that might be related to this, we see some really interesting findings, which again, might be a topic for another day. But we do see that there is degeneration to, to some tracks in the brain that we think are involved in sleep. And that degeneration might be driving that excessively long sleep duration um, post-stroke. Excellent. So, Ellie, what's next for you? Have you finished your PhD? Are you um, stuck in, because we're in the middle of uh, coronavirus yeah. lockdown. So what day are we? Today we're like the 21st <laughs> or 22nd of uh, April. That's so, exactly right. So, yeah, in case anybody's listened to this in 2025 when we're, <laughs> when, when we're still in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yeah, so what's next? So I... Uh, I need to submit this thing. So I have, uh, I need to submit my thesis. So I actually have a date now. Uh, May 15th is the day that I'm planning on submitting my actual thesis, uh, which is, which is very close. Um, and, and I think then uh, hoping to publish two more papers from this PhD that really dovetail some of the findings that we focused on today. Uh, and that is a, a paper looking at sleep architecture in the very, very late stages of stroke. So this is at three years post-stroke. Uh, and we found some really interesting things, kind of going back to that idea that sleep-wake dysfunction uh, might not be transient post-stroke. So this is not this fleeting thing that just happens because of the environment. Uh, this might be something that persists in the, in the longer stages, uh, you know, in three years post-stroke. Um, and then also a validation study. Uh, so looking at um, an armband, a multi-sensor armband, and, uh, you know, comparing that uh, against polysomnography, which is the gold standard. Mm. Yeah. 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 Have you published that paper? We're about to submit it. Uh, we're about to submit. I'm trying to find a journal. I don't know exactly where where it would go. Um, so I might, I might talk to you offline to see yeah. where, where you hang, think. Hang, hang on at the end of this call and I'll tell you yeah. my experience with validation paper. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's lined up for after your PhD? Um, have, you got a, have you got a gig lined up in, um, yeah. in Australia heading back to the States or are you yeah. just going to hunker down here for yeah. and see what happens? It's a great question. So I think um, number one, I so my supervisor, I work with um, Amy Brotman and Mark Howard. I don't know if you know Mark Howard. Oh, I know, I know Mark Howard. Yeah. Oh, do you? Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I'll tell oh, you some okay. stories offline. Oh, oh, geez. Yeah. Mark <laughs> so Howard, if you're Mark Howard, if you're listening, answer my emails. Come on this podcast, <laughs> and, and you have nothing to hide, Mark Howard. Oh. Like, I think he's afraid to come on because he knows I'll tell stories about. Him. Oh really? <laughs> he's great though. So he's at the um, he's at the Institute of Breathing and Sleep, which is right next to uh, next to us. It's connected to us, uh, and he's great. So he's been such a like a sagacious, very calming figure for me throughout my PhD. Um, and so uh, anyway, so what's next? So I I'm hoping to do. Um, uh, so I'm doing a, like a four or five month postdoc with yep. Amy Brotman um, just in the interim um, because there's a lot more data actually. We also collected um, uh, urinary melatonin samples for a bunch of patients, uh, stroke patients. And so we're going to be looking at that. We also have a bunch of MRI markers that we also want to continue to look at uh, longitudinally. So we have some really, I think, interesting and robust data uh, to look at. Uh, and this includes that accelerometer that we use to measure sleep. Uh, we have that at uh, three months, six months, one year, three year, and five years post-stroke. Uh, and then we have all these really interesting MRI metrics uh, at each time point as well. So there's so much to look at um, and a lot to really uncover and, and to kind of delve deeper into this. So the idea is to you know look at some of that as in a four or five month postdoc, but eventually I do want to go back to the U.S. I love it here. I don't want to leave, um, but it's a bit far from family. So yeah. uh, I'm going to start looking at uh, you know potential postdocs in the U.S. Uh, eventually, though, I do want to get potentially into industry. Uh, I used to work for Johnson and Johnson, and it was I loved working for them. So uh, putting some kind of industry work together, um, looking at sleep, uh, and, and potentially even creating some kind of uh, sleep software or hardware is something that I'm really passionate about, um, not just in, in neurological populations, patients with neurological disease, but in healthy controls as well, or just healthy, you know, the average consumer. Yeah, yeah. Very and are you going to look at going back to Florida or somewhere else? I, I don't know. So I, I'm trying to figure out where exactly I'll be, uh, but at least somewhere in the state so it's not a 
30-hour <laughs> uh, <laughs> endeavor to get back. Because not only do I have to go back, you know, I go from Melbourne to L.A., but then I have to take the longest domestic flight in the U.S., which is L.A. to Miami when I go back home. So as long as I don't have to do that, as long as I could be somewhere in the U.S. to be relatively close to family, that's, I think that's what's important to me. Yeah, well, arguably going through TSA and then missing your connection and then trying to get a flight to Miami, maybe longer than 30 hours. So that it, sometimes it, that can be the longest route. <laughs> oh, it has been. I go back home once a year and uh, there's been times where I'd be stranded. I've been stranded in L.A. and I'm like, this is... I just took a 16-hour flight. Can we not do this right now? <laughs> yeah, I used to go through LA a lot, and even getting access to the first-class lounge even then was just painful. So oh. I, I, can't, I can't imagine going around general population. Uh, no, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm usually on the student budget, so can't, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. No, thanks, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ellie, if people want to contact you, they want to get in touch to maybe you know, talk about your work, maybe do some yeah. work with you, or follow you on Twitter, Instagram, any other social handles? What, what, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so the best way I think would be the way you found me, which is through Twitter. Um, and so my, my Twitter is just, my handle is just my, my first name and last name. So it's L-E-E-L-I-E, last name is Gottlieb, G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B. And uh, the best way to really contact me is through Twitter. Um, obviously my email as well, which is le.gottlieb at flory.edu.au. Yeah. Thank you so much, by the way, for having me on here. I I, I really appreciate this opportunity. And as I mentioned, this is my first time on here on on doing kind of a public um, public talk uh, through through a podcast. So I hope it went well. So again, thank you, Ian. I appreciate such a fan of your work as well. Everybody go check out your recent uh, your recent work because it's it's really great. No worries, mate. Yeah, thanks. It's, I, I'm always uh, interested to talk to different people in the sleep area, especially areas I'm not really an expert in. So yeah. uh, it's always great for me to learn. So this is a, this is a selfish learning opportunity. This podcast, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. All right, Ellie, thank you very much uh, for uh, coming on the podcast today. Um, just hold on. And I'll tell you some stories about Mark Howard uh, <laughs> after, we, after we close this. So, so thank right, you, uh, Ellie. If anybody wants um, to get the show notes for this episode, you can head over to sleepforperformance.com.au. You can get the show notes and the link to this episode if you want to share it. We're on all popular podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, uh, the whole lot. We also have Sleep for Performance TV where we have some webinars up now as well. You can go and search that on YouTube. There's lots of blogs, articles on the website. We've got some free downloads. We also have a new free downloadable uh, PDF book on bodyweight exercises. So for those of you stuck at home during Corona times, there's 20 workouts in there. Uh, if they're not your cup of tea, you can change them, make them work for yourself. The main thing is to keep yourself fit and healthy during this time because we know that good exercise promotes good sleep. So we have lots of stuff up, up there about coronavirus times. So go and check it out. So until next time, sleep well.